Hi, I'm Peter Beinart. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and uh, here for another episode of the podcast Occupied Thoughts. Very pleased to be joined today by Khaled El-Gindi, who's a non-resident fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution and a founding board member of the Egyptian-American Rule of Law Institute and perhaps most importantly, the author of a really interesting new book called Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Khaled, thanks a lot for being on. Thanks for having me. So let's just start maybe in a really, really basic way. Tell me about the argument of the book. Um, well, I mean, the question I get asked a lot is, why would you write this book? Mm-hmm. Why, another, why do we need another peace process book? Um, and uh, so I guess, you know, to answer that question and your question, um, I think I took a little bit of a different approach. I wanted to understand you know, what was it about American policy and American behavior that made the peace process uh, the way it was? Obviously, the United States had enormous uh, influence in shaping uh, the the peace process. And I found that a lot of uh, folks generally tend to focus either on specific events like the Camp David negotiations and why they failed or they sort of you know, pin the blame on one or the other uh, of the of the two parties. But I really wanted to get at the U.S. role, and um, and and I took I took a very sort of broad historical view in order to to understand why U.S. policy is the way it is. Because I found the nature of American mediation and peacemaking is very much outside of the norm of what a typical mediator does. Um, And so the central argument of the book is essentially that not only did the U.S.-led peace process fail, um, but the way American mediation was conducted actually contributed to those failures and, and I believe, made a negotiated settlement much more difficult. Um, And so... One snarky way to put it, um, I had a, a, an essay uh, last year entitled How the Peace Process Killed the Two-State Solution. Um, and that, I think, sort of, in a snarky way, encapsulates the, the thrust of my argument. So talk a little bit about the nature of U.S. mediation. You, you, you said that the U.S. mediation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been outside the norm of a typical mediator. So how has the United States mediated or other countries mediated in other situations? And, and, and how does the, the way the role the U.S. has played in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict differ? Yeah, I mean, in, in two ways. Um, and they have to do with power and politics. Uh, and, you know, politics is a form of, of power. And so the, the two notions are intimately connected. And so when you look at the power dynamics and the political dynamics of the conflict uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, you, you understand the, the roots of that conflict. It, it, to put it another way, you can't really understand uh, what animates this conflict without looking at the power dynamics. Um, and, the, and the power dynamics not only between Israelis and Palestinians, where you have an occupier 
and an occupied population. Obviously, there is a huge disparity, asymmetry in in power. Um, but also, with uh, when you bring the United States into the mix, there's there's an uh, an even greater disparity between the United States, a global super superpower on the one hand, and the Palestinians uh, uh, who are a non-state actor uh, on the other. And, and then you combine that with the political uh, relationship between the United States and Israel, the special relationship. Um, that's the context in which this peace process is, is uh, or has been conducted. And so, you know, it's not necessarily true that the process was doomed to fail, but given the political and the power dynamics, I think it made failure a lot more likely. Uh, than a negotiated breakthrough. Essentially, uh, what a mediator, what a normal mediator does is to account for the power asymmetry and somehow uh, try to address it. Um, In this case, uh, you know, Israel being the more powerful side has no real incentive to unilaterally withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza, set up a sovereign Palestinian state uh, with a capital in East Jerusalem, you know, which would mean, of course, dividing Jerusalem uh, and and evacuating tens of thousands of Israeli settlers. Um, there are political costs, there are economic costs uh, associated with all of those, um, and that Israel is not going to undertake that willingly or altruistically uh, without significant pressure, without an incentive <clears throat> to do that. Uh, and what we've seen consistently is that the United States, for various reasons and in to varying degrees, does not want to put pressure on Israel, uh, either because of pressure from the pro-Israel lobby or because of Congress uh, or both. Uh, various aspects of the special relationship kind of color uh, how the United States approaches this. Um, and so to the extent that you know, you look at the last 25 years of Oslo and American mediation, you find that if and when pressure is applied, it is usually on the Palestinians. Um, it's low-hanging fruit. It's very easy to put pressure on the Palestinians. Um, it's much harder, more politically costly for an American president, at least potentially, to put pressure on, uh, on the Israelis. Uh, and so they tend not to do that. Even presidents like Barack Obama, who were not especially sentimental about Israel, who had a very rough relationship with the Israeli prime minister, um, was still not inclined to put any real meaningful pressure on, uh, on the Israeli side. So over time, you have more and more pressure being applied on the weaker side, uh, on the Palestinians. They have to meet all these conditions on institution building, on uh, clamping down on, uh, on violent extremists, on, you know, reforming their political institutions and so on. Um, there are no real uh, conditions placed on, uh, on the Israeli side. Um, there are, you know, admonishments for settlement activity. Occasionally there are some harsh words, harsh rhetoric, but no real cost imposed to Israeli violations of the uh, Oslo framework or of the Quartet Roadmap or of the uh, basic 
principles that the peace process is based on. And, you know, so over time you have less pressure on the stronger side and more pressure on the weaker side. Uh, and, and what happens is the weaker side gets even weaker uh, and the stronger side feels more emboldened uh, and triumphalist. And lo and behold, that's where we are today. Uh, we have a Palestinian polity that is divided, dysfunctional, um, and uh, incapable, really, of making the kind of political compromises that are needed for a negotiated settlement. Um, and you have, on the other side, an Israeli side that is, you know, triumphalist and, and, and this sense of uh, impunity. Uh, whether it's for its kind of militaristic responses uh, in in Gaza or the West Bank or East Jerusalem uh, or uh, settlement activity, uh, there's no price to pay, uh, and there's never been a price to pay for any of those violations. And so, you know, you end up with uh, with a, uh, something like the status quo, but worse, um, in the sense that the that the power disparity is growing between the two sides. Not all of that is attributed uh, to U.S. policy. Obviously, a lot of Palestinian political dysfunction is self-made, is self-inflicted. Um, but it is, and I, this is what I argue in the book, it is to a great extent, um, at least, if not encouraged, at least held in place. By U.S. policy. So I'll give you an example. Um, now it's become sort of uh, uh, fashionable to talk about the need to reunify uh, Palestinians. Um, this split between the West Bank and Gaza, everyone realizes, is highly destabilizing, and uh, uh, and and you know it's very hard to engage in a diplomatic process with with that division. Um, the only problem with that narrative is that for the last, most of the last 12 years, it has been U.S. policy to oppose Palestinian reconciliation. And that was true under most of uh, uh, the uh, Obama administration as well. It was really only in, um, in the last couple of years, last two and a half years of, of the Obama administration, that, that there was a slight shift, you know, after the the, the latest Gaza war uh, in 2014, or actually just before the Gaza war, there was kind of a, a shift in the Obama administration's thinking about, okay, well, maybe we can accept a Palestinian uh, government that is unified in the West Bank and Gaza that has Hamas uh, consent, um, uh, even though it didn't have Hamas members. So, um, so in those ways, I think U.S. policy directly contributed to Palestinian dysfunction, um, and and it was largely because American policymakers tend to view the issue through a very Israeli lens. Uh, it's colored by the special relationship with Israel. It's colored by um, you know the the very strong pro-Israel sentiment that you have in the U.S. Congress. Um, and uh, and that's you know that's to a large extent why we are where we are today. So um, the let, let's let's uh, 
kind of think about how this argument uh, would have played itself out historically. And I want to kind of, I want to set this up by giving you the kind of narrative that one hears often inside the American Jewish community about what happened between the beginning of the Oslo process in 1993 and the um, kind of collapse of the the Camp David uh, summit in the summer of 2000 or the, the negotiations that followed in the later into 2000, 2001. So sometimes when I do these uh, podcasts, I like to kind of assume the uh, the perspective of someone I call Ira, which is kind of like a composite of like the kind of people I tend to run in at synagogue and other places. So, um, so Ira would say something along the lines of, what do you mean? Um, uh, the United States is, was too pro-Israel and, uh, and that and 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 that's responsible for the failure. Israel recognized the PLO, it negotiated. Bill Clinton kind of got uh, Ehud Barak to uh, propose a Palestinian state in most of the West Bank with a capital in East Jerusalem, and uh, Yasser Arafat rejected it. And the Palestinians resorted to terrorism in the Second Intifada, and so then who can blame Israelis for responding to that by moving to the right? So that's a Pretty standard narrative, maybe in the American Jewish community, maybe in Washington as well. And I'm wondering how, through your perspective of the book, you would you would you would talk about what happened during that kind of fateful period. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a key moment. Certainly, I think uh, that that Palestinians, Israelis, everyone kind of goes back to as the you know the source of you know it's what launched us onto the trajectory that we're currently on. So. Um, I, I would say, you know, the the only problem with the narrative that you laid out is that it's been thoroughly debunked by virtually everyone, uh, Israeli negotiators, American negotiators, certainly Palestinian negotiators. Not Dennis Ross. You know, Dennis folks, Ross and Bill Clinton uh, kind of have asserted it, haven't they? They ha- Well, Bill Clinton has, but, you know, Bill Clinton hasn't written a sort of um, expose of how the negotiations um uh, went the mm-hmm. way Dennis Ross did, mm-hmm. but even Dennis Ross's narrative is more nuanced mm-hmm. uh, than uh, than the you know than what you just laid out. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty clear. I think if you look at events, I mean, for one, that the July Camp David summit, everyone agrees. Simply, you know, whatever it was that Barack offered was certainly far-reaching. From an Israeli standpoint and in Israeli terms, and politically risky for him, but from a Palestinian standpoint, it was a non-starter. Um, you know, eighty some percent of the West Bank, uh, no real meaningful sovereignty uh, in in East Jerusalem, uh, and and those were those were the primary stumbling blocks. And I think the proof that it wasn't really a generous offer, as the narrative goes was the fact that both American policy and Israeli um, thinking on what a final status map would look like uh, evolved considerably over the three, four months that followed the collapse of Camp David. So that by the time we get to uh, the Clinton parameters, um, both the Israelis and the Americans had moved considerably. So, you know, it was a useful... It was a useful tactic, I think, for Barack, who had made what he saw these very far-reaching compromises. He has his opposition back home, um, and he has to 
um, you know, he has to protect himself. So the way he does that is by pinning the blame on Arafat saying, I didn't actually mean what I said. I was just testing Arafat to show that he is the um, uh, intransigent, uh, you know, terrorist that he's always been. Um, he, he said that to cover his own, uh, you know, backside uh, politically. Uh, and the problem, which is, which is understandable from a political standpoint, when things go wrong, people have to blame someone and they usually don't like to blame themselves. The problem was when Clinton joined that, um, that narrative, and even though he had promised the Palestinian side that they wouldn't be blamed uh, in the event of failure, that was a precondition for the Palestinians who were reluctant to go to Camp David for them to participate. Um, so he broke that promise and he still pinned the blame on, on Yasser Arafat. Uh, even though it was clear to just about everyone uh, who's written about Camp David that it just simply didn't go far enough. Now, as far as the Intifada, I think, again, the outbreak of violence in September a few months later, even as they were still negotiating, um, obviously complicated things. But again, we have these clashing narratives. The narrative that you laid out is common, but it doesn't align with the facts. Um, the facts were that Palestinian anger and frustration had been building up for years. The Oslo process had not delivered any real benefits. Um, the Israelis had uh, not carried out a number of their obligations, like the third major uh, redeployment. Um, economically, Palestinians were worse off because of the repeated closures uh, in, the, in the West Bank and Gaza. In, and Gaza, um, uh, in part as a result of, of Palestinian suicide attacks uh, by Hamas and other groups. And so there was already this, this kind of um, widespread frustration uh, on the Palestinian side. And uh, then when the Camp David talks failed and uh, Sharon made his famous trip to, uh, to the, uh, the Temple Mount slash Haram in, in Jerusalem, that sort of, you know, caused the explosion. Um, I mean, it sparked the explosion. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the kindling was already there. Um, and all it needed was, uh, was that match to kind of set things ablaze. Um, but the reality is that all sides, they can, even after, uh, the outbreak of violence, um, they, they continued to negotiate. The negotiations continued, uh, leading all the way up to December, uh, just before Christmas, when, uh, when Clinton issued his parameters. Um, and again, uh, well, I mean, the other thing I'll say about the violence is if you look at uh, the, the fact-finding mission that President Clinton himself appointed into the causes of, of the violence, it found very clearly that, yes, it was true that Yasser Arafat was kind of, um, you know, treating Palestinian attacks sort of with a wink and a nod, uh, but, but that Israel's disproportionate response and overly militaristic response um, using live fire against unarmed protesters and things like that 
um, unnecessarily aggravated the situation. Um, so you've got high Palestinian casualties, um, and and you know what? You know, one of the things that I stress in the book that American politicians usually lose sight of is that Palestinians have politics too. Um, and so that makes leaders make sometimes uh, bad decisions, but they have to cover themselves in the same way that Barack had to blame Arafat to cover uh, himself politically. Uh, Arafat needed to cover also because there was Hamas in the background saying Arafat's going to uh, give away Jerusalem at Camp David. Um, he's going to uh, sign away refugee rights. Uh, and, and this is all capitulation. Um, uh, and then you have, on top of that, the mounting death toll on the Palestinian side. And of course, there's a lot of pressure on the Palestinian leader to look um, like he's not giving in. He's not giving in to Israeli violence. He's not giving in to American pressure. Uh, and that often causes leaders to make, I think, what what those of us on the outside might see as uh, unwise choices, uh, but that's certainly true on on both sides. But let's let so me, that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, and then the the final point on the Clinton parameters. The reality was that the you know when Clinton issued his parameters for final status talks, it was a very very difficult choice for both sides. And both sides gave essentially the same answer, which was a yes, but, and they each sort of outlined their reservations. The problem was, and that was initially how Clinton took it. If you look at the, the timeline of events, um, Clinton accepted that both sides had, had uh, basically accepted the Clinton parameters with reservations. What happened in the intervening moments um, before Clinton left office uh, was that Dennis Ross convinced uh, the president that Barack's yes, but um, was in fact that, but Arafat was more of a rejection. And so there was a revision of how the Clinton administration um, took it. And, and I think that became, um, I think that was a function of, you know, as the clock was running out and it looked like a final peace deal was becoming less and less likely, both the Americans and Israelis needed someone to blame. Um, and like I said, no, no politician ever blames themselves for, for failures. It's much easier to pin the blame uh, on, on the weakest side uh, and the Palestinians. Let me let me offer up uh, just two other arguments just because they're so frequently heard. Um, um, in a kind of a, you could say, a kind of mainstream Washington and also in a kind of American Jewish discourse. Just um, the, the, the first would be, the first would be, even if the Israelis went, you know, uh, f far enough in terms of a, a genuinely viable sovereign Palestinian state with a capital East Jerusalem and, and um, which, you know, and, and withdrawing enough settlements to make that, to make that possible. At the, at the end of the, at the end of the day, Palestinian leaders can't or won't make um, a substantial won't won't significantly limit the right of refugee return. Um, uh, uh, that's a kind of that's something you tend to hear a lot um, among people who are kind of let's say defenders of the kind of it's not Israel's fault line of line of argument. 
What would be your your response to that? Yeah, I, I think that hasn't been the case. I mean, if you look at the Camp David negotiations, the Taba negotiations, um, the you know informal Geneva Accords, um, and even the Annapolis talks in 2008, seven and eight, um, that simply wasn't the case. It was never really the refugee issue that was the stumbling block to a final status agreement. It was more often territory and and specifically sovereignty over Jerusalem and keep key parts of Jerusalem. That's where that's where Camp David broke down. That's where the Clinton parameters um, didn't quite uh, make the cut. Uh, and it's where, where other negotiations kind of uh, faltered. Um, the Palestinians have repeatedly been willing, have shown that they're willing to accept enormous compromises on refugee right of return uh, in exchange for a genuine sovereign Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital, um, so I, I just I don't think that comports with uh, with the facts. I mean, any I think any honest participant in this process will tell you uh, that time and again it was Jerusalem that thwarted, uh, that ultimately kind of uh, was the main stumbling block in these negotiations. And, and not refugees. Mahmoud Abbas himself has gone out of his way to say things like, you know, even though he himself is a refugee from from uh, Safad, which is now in Israel, uh, that he doesn't desire to go back. Uh, and, and he got a lot of, you know, there was a lot of uh, criticism by Palestinians for, for saying that. The Palestinian public still very strongly clings to this, at least a um, doctrinal right of return, that this is enshrined in international law and it's our right and we're not going to give it up. But the reality is that if you look at polls, even public opinion changes when, you know, if you ask Palestinians, will you give up the right of return? They will say no. If you say, will you compromise on the right of return in exchange for a genuinely sovereign state in the West Bank and Gaza with East Jerusalem as its capital? majority of Palestinians tend to say yes. Um, so it's just not the case that the refugee issue uh, was uh, was the, the main stumbling block. You know, the, the PLO leadership has repeatedly shown a willingness to compromise on the refugees, even to the point that they've incurred criticism from their political opponents and the public. So the, the, another argument, and then I'll take off my kind of devil's advocate, uh, hat is is basically that okay sure so maybe maybe Abbas uh, um, and Fatah you know and, and uh, w- w- accept what might accept this but but that still leaves out Hamas which is a more maximalist uh, which has a more maximalist view so even if you could cut to, cut such a deal with Abbas w- uh, ha- you know why is there any reason to believe that you could get the Hamas to go along and the, and you could have a united Palestinian acceptance of such a deal um, well yeah I mean that. You know, obviously Hamas is uh, is a is a stumbling block, and it's part and parcel of the Palestinian polity, and it complicates the diplomatic process. There's no question, um, <clears throat> and so I'm not saying that it would be easy uh, to you know once you factor in Hamas. No, of course it makes it much harder. But what I'm arguing is that you know every society has its politics and its political opposition, including 
rejectionists. Israel certainly has its rejectionists. It had its rejectionists all throughout the Oslo process. Um, those rejectionists helped to shape the direction of the peace process, um, especially after Netanyahu, his first election in, uh, in 97, uh, when he became prime minister, the peace process took a very different course. Um, and, and that was because Israeli public opinion, I mean, that was because Israeli politics had to respond to public opinion uh, on some level. Uh, and, 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 and that, you know, politics was a constraint on, uh, on uh, Israeli leadership, but it's also a constraint on, on the Palestinians. And so what I'm arguing is that, yes, Hamas is problematic. Their positions are problematic. Their behavior has been problematic. But pretending that they don't exist uh, is more problematic. Pretending that you can kind of, you know, excise them from this thing called the peace process uh, and, and, and act as though um, a Palestinian leader doesn't have to respond to his political opponents uh, or that they don't have to take into account the views of their political opponent uh, was ultimately self-defeating. So yes, Hamas's presence in Palestinian politics complicated and, and would have complicated uh, the diplomatic process more had, had they been allowed to participate fully in, in Palestinian politics. But that's just the nature of politics. And that's the nature of diplomacy, is you're negotiating not only with the guy sitting across the table from you, but also with their political opposition. Um, so we understand that instinctively when it comes to Israel. You know, we can't demand certain things like a settlement freeze um, uh, because, well, you know, it will embolden uh, the Israeli leader's opposition and, and it will bring down his ruling coalition or, or whatever. So we're sensitive to that. We're ultra sensitive to that, but we're not at all sensitive to the constraints on, on Palestinian leaders. And that's the problem. Um, so we can't pretend that Palestinian politics don't exist, that Hamas doesn't exist. Yes, they, uh, they will make the diplomatic process more complicated um, in the same way that Israeli politics did. But you still have to factor that into the, into the process because pretending that they didn't exist um, clearly wasn't the solution. It's where we are. It's why we are where we are today to a large extent. I want to switch gears a little bit. Y your book is really about the failures of American policy. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the reasons that American policy is the way it is. And, you know, you worked in Washington for um, in and around American politics for, for quite a long time. Um, and um, I wonder how, how what, if you can talk about your own experience um, as someone who has tried to shift this debate in Washington. I think one of the things that you know, we've seen recently with the controversy about, you know, the comments of Ilhan Omar and the, and the, and, and the, uh, you know, the election of Rashida Tlaib is that, um, is how difficult it is how perilous it is for people to try to change the the conversation, and how the very act of talking about the role of uh, of the of groups like APAC um, can um, itself provoke very very fierce resistance because of concerns. Maybe there's some legitimacy to those concerns, even that that you know that this can 
play into anti-Semitic tropes. So just interested in what you've learned from your own experience in in uh, about the nature of the discourse about Israel and Washington and how, if at all, it can be changed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I've been arguing and the reason that I wrote the book was that American policymakers and politicians have not engaged in a genuine, honest, forthright debate on Israel and Palestine in a very, very long time. Um, and that is, I think, largely a function of, you know, when people talk about this um, bipartisan consensus on Israel and that it's collapsing and that it's, it's bad, um, my you know, what my research has shown me and my experience has, has taught me is uh, this idea of a bipartisan consensus is relatively new. It's mainly a product of the Oslo era uh, of, of the 1990s and, and since. Um, that consensus has gotten more rigid. And one of the byproducts of this bipartisan consensus is that there's no real debate. Um, if there's not a partisan uh, divide on uh, on on Israel, uh, then there is no divide at all. And there's no there's no point in having any discussion. Everyone agrees on enormous amounts of Israel aid. Everyone agrees that um, when uh, when things go bad, you blame the Palestinians. Everyone agrees on uh, you know on the basics, whether it's uh, Jerusalem or uh, refugees. You know uh, that that we have to uphold essentially Israeli priorities and Israeli claims. Um, what I argue is that that bipartisan consensus has been uh, a disaster for U.S. policy because without real debate, you can't produce sound policy. Um, and what we're starting to see now is cracks in that consensus, mainly because Israeli politics has been on this rightward trajectory for the past 10 or 15 years or more. Um, and because American politics is so attached to Israeli politics, it's pulled the American center or the American kind of the center of the American political discourse along with it to the right. Um, but the problem is that America is not Israel. And so American liberals and progressives, I think, have have grown increasingly uncomfortable with that rightward shift in Israeli politics uh, and are starting to express that that alienation. Um, and it's it's causing, I think, real um, a real split among among Democrats. Uh, and, and we saw, you know, we saw it manifested in John Kerry's valedictorian speech when he uh, just before the Obama administration left office and he was talking about, you know, Israel can't continue on this path forever. American uh, Americans will not choose, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, um, if Americans have to choose between supporting an Israel uh, that is essentially moving towards an, an apartheid-like reality on the ground um, and not supporting Israel, uh, you know, Americans are not going to support illiberal values. Um, and that was the challenge that even someone at, with as strong a pro-Israel record as John Kerry, um, you know, even he could see that. So 
you know, I think the problem stems from the fact that American politics have been so um, tied to to the Israeli political spectrum, um, and only now are we starting to see voices that that are not only you know anti-establishment; they're 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 so far out of the kind of orthodoxy on on this issue. You have two. Congress members who openly embrace uh, BDS, you know, boycotting Israel. Um, that's a real shift, um, and and I think it's not just the, the the personalities and politics of these two individual lawmakers. I think it reflects a deeper trend uh, within the Democratic Party, within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, um, that is totally unsatisfied with not only the direction of overall U.S. policy, but their own political establishment within the Democratic Party. Um, and they are wanting to assert more egalitarian values uh, and, and some sort of accountability. So the fact that you have these two members who are willing to openly uh, embrace BDS for the first time, I think made them very easy targets um, for, uh, you know, for the pro-Israel lobby, for pro-Israel forces in general. And now we're seeing, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. There's this creation of this new group, the Democratic Majority for Israel. Right. You know, in the past, you didn't need uh, that right. sort of a group because the Democratic Party, that by default was was a majority that was for Israel. Um, so the the fact that you have this now shows just how much the party has changed, um, uh, certainly at the grassroots level, but it's now also starting to impact um, the, the politics and in some ways, even the policy. And so I think it's a good thing, wherever one stands, you don't have to love BDS or you don't have to love um, Ilhan Omar or Rashida uh, but uh, the fact that they are they are opening up space for political debate should be welcomed by everyone because it's the absence of that debate that has made for such um, such bad policies. Um, and you know that's the real purpose of of my book is to is to document some of that history, but also to insert. Um, and encourage that you know that debate uh, going forward. One of the questions I wonder about is, um, obviously, we're in, it's 2019 now. It's a very different world than the 1990s. Um, and um, I've often thought that for American progressives, the no, the very notion that you solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by creating two st- two ethnically nationalist states two kind of states with kind of a religious ethnic character, in some ways is a, is a less natural response given the values and experience of American progressives than the idea of simply supporting one state, which at least in theory would have no religious and ethnic character, right? It would be just kind of, you know, one state for all its citizens, you know, kind of make it like America, right? Um, and I wonder, um, that has not my personal view, but I wonder, that is kind of think closer to the view that Rashida Tlaib and, and Ilhan Omar are advocating. And I wonder how possible you think it is that 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 American progressives and 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 the Dem- even the Democratic Party could swing 
towards ultimately that view, um, you know, partly based on the sense that the two-state solution is no longer viable, but partly based on even a sense that perhaps the two-state solution is less reflective of progressive values than actually the idea of one state with equality for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's certainly an ideological component to it uh, or a philosophical component to it where, you know, people... Uh, people who are egalitarian by nature, they want to apply these universal values across the board. Um, and so instead of having an exclusivist state or two exclusivist states or two kind of, you know, um, ethnic nationalist states, then why not have something that looks more like the United States right. um, in terms of a liberal democracy where, where uh, citizenship is not determined by blood or by um, uh, but 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 by simply you know being a member of this community and by birth by being born here, um, uh, but you know the American concept of citizenship is itself pretty radical mm-hmm. and and not that common even among Western democracies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's understandable, I think, why there is there is that uh, that trend among pro- progressives. But I, I I think it's also clear um, that a a very large component of of those who advocate for one state are also doing so because of the total failure of the current peace process. Um, and, you know, we're certainly seeing that among Palestinians where you have now, I think there's a real generational divide among Palestinians, uh, you know, who, you know, it's probably still a slight plurality who support two states. If you look at just the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, uh, but I think, you know, recently it started to kind of flip the other way. Uh, there are, there's a slight plurality that, that favor uh, one state or that are opposed to two states. Um, but whatever the exact uh, situation, it's clear that there's a trend. And the trend is that, you know, when you've got 25 years of political and diplomatic failure, people will naturally look to alternatives. Um, and so the failure of the Oslo process isn't just a failure of the process. I think it's a failure. It reflects on, um, uh, on the whole two state framework. Um, it's very hard for someone like Mahmoud Abbas, who I think is one of the only real true believers in a two state solution left. Um, it's very hard for him to make the case really to anyone. Uh, that we need to continue to pursue this because it hasn't worked. Um, And more importantly, the stronger side, Israel, doesn't seem to want it. Uh, So if you can't convince Israel to withdraw its army and settlers from the West Bank and Gaza, then maybe it makes more sense to simply demand citizenship uh, from the state that already rules over you anyway. So. There's a there is a certain logic to it. The problem with that view, though, is that it hasn't. Um, it's still not politically viable. Uh, I don't think you have. You don't even really have a critical mass on on the Palestinian side in favor of a one state solution. I can't think of any political party, for example, uh, that or movement that is advocating for one state. Uh, of any real significance. Um, and so you have that sentiment maybe among large 
segments of the Palestinian public, but that hasn't translated it into a political movement or or political, you know, it's not um, politically coherent yet. Or, um, and, but I but I definitely think that's where things are headed. I think that's where things are headed on the Palestinian side. Uh, I think large segments of the American public also. It's much easier to say. You know, it's it's hard to make the case for why why Israel should withdraw hundreds of thousands of settlers uh, and and the Israeli army, um, and divide Jerusalem. How do you make that case anymore? Uh, it's much easier, at least mentally, logically, philosophically, to say, okay, fine, you don't have to go anywhere. Just give me the right to vote, um, and that's something that I think will resonate with a lot of Americans because it's part of the American, you know, zeitgeist. Uh, we instinctively want to support, you know, an egalitarian outcome. Um, the last question I had is, is I'm interested in how you think this may play out in, in, in 2020. It strikes me that Bernie Sanders has come out with the most kind of far reaching or kind of radical kind of move away from the, the, you know, what you call the kind of bipartisan Israel consensus. And um, uh, I don't know. I wonder if you think if you think other candidates in the Democratic primary will follow. I wonder how you think that will play out for Sanders as he does things that are, you know, really unusual for a national American politician like like suggest he might be open, for instance, to cutting or conditioning military aid. How do you think it may play out as we move forward in the campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, Sanders, uh, you know, he is moving the discourse. And to to an extent, really, he's kind of defining the Democratic agenda on a whole range of issues, social issues, um, domestic political issues, as well as, uh, you know, to some extent on, on foreign policy. Um, I tend to think that it's not purely, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cynic by nature, you know, and a I think any analyst has to be uh, somewhat. Um, you know, I tend to not attribute his uh, his positions really to altruistic motivations. I'm I'm sure that may be part of it, but but I think he is tapping into something in the same way that most Americans support uh, healthcare reform and they want um, you know something that looks more like Medicaid for all. Uh, most Americans, you know, if you're in the polling bears this out, most Americans also support putting pressure on Israel, um, especially when it comes to things like settlements or, or human rights abuses. So he's tapping into a, a trend um, in American public opinion that is, that is also being expressed politically. Uh, you know, the anti-intervention uh, trend that is so popular now uh, on on the on the left um he's also i think reflecting that in a in his own sort of nuanced way so um so i think he is he does have the potential because he's gone farther than any of the other presidential candidates on this issue um i, I think he is in a position to sort of set the uh set the bar in some ways um, and it's very interesting that if you look at the, you know, S1, the, the most recent anti-BDS legislation mm -hmm. that was, you know, put forward in the, in the Senate, 
um, six out of the seven, I believe, right. uh, Democrats who have thrown their hat into the ring opposed it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, a maj- uh, let's say, uh, uh, most of the Democratic caucus in the Senate uh, voted for it, or it was about 24 to 22, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. uh, Democrats were split. So they're split almost down the middle on this issue. And I think Sanders represents that trend that was, um, you know, that the, the trend within the party that is increasingly willing to challenge the orthodoxy on Israel. Uh, and they're becoming more vocal. Um, so I think he isn't really in a position to, to kind of uh, define uh, the agenda. And, and we're seeing, at least in some ways, the Democratic pool reflect that on, on, on some level. In a lot of other ways, we still see, you know, you have Cory Booker talking about Palestinians use their kids as human shields or, you know, Elizabeth Warren talking about Palestinians as a demographic threat. Um, you know, there's still a tendency, I think, for even progressives to talk about the issue in sort of simplistic and often dehumanizing terms when it comes to the Palestinians. So we still have a long way to go. Uh, but I think if anyone can can help change the the discourse, it's probably someone like Bernie Sanders. Khaled, um, thank you so much for for taking the time, and I really recommend that everybody go and and read the book. And uh, good luck with it. Thanks so much, Peter, for having me. Thanks.